All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. I am thrilled to be in studio today with Nick Rasmussen. He was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center from 2014 to 2017. Prior to that, he was deputy director at NCTC, which is what we're going to call it from now on because that's a long name. Uh, he worked in the NSC with me. He is now the senior director of the counterterrorism program at the McCain Institute at Arizona State University and a contributor to a whole bunch of news outlets. Most importantly, my friend, my former colleague, Nick, it's great to see you. It's great to be here, Tommy. You know, we were talking outside just how much when you leave the environment we were in, you miss people more than you miss anything else. And and that comes home when I see you. It is such a weird thing because I talked to you like every day for four years, but we talked about issues that were probably classified about terrorism or kind of, it's like, it's a context in a point in time in your life that is sort of almost impossible to recreate, I guess, unless you go back into government. That's true. And then when I stepped down at the end of 2017, I knew I was going to, you know, suffer a little bit from withdrawal and I, and I, it's turning out that way. Um, Not so much from issues or the chance to have a, a voice on policy decisions, but it really is that sense of fellowship with people that you are Mm -hmm. working alongside. And I had built a team for myself at at NCTC that I was really proud of and I care about. And so when you walk away from that, you know, it feels, you feel it. You feel it. You definitely feel it. So listeners to this show have heard me talk about how the deep state attacks are just nonsense and how the people I worked with were, were nonpartisan. They were career professionals. You are the archetype of the NSC goon uh, that helps me finally explain what I'm talking about. So let me credential you for a moment. And we say goon at the NSC with great fondness. You just left 27 years of government service. You have served continuously in counterterrorism jobs since September 11th, 2001. You worked in counterterrorism roles for George Bush, then Barack Obama, and then you stayed on to support President Trump in your uh, role as head of NCTC for a year? A A year, that's right. How weird has your last year been? <laughs> it was different, um, <laughs> you know. But i i was I was prepared to leave at the time of the transition because you need to be prepared to leave. Yeah. I was a presidential appointee. Uh, president Obama did me that great honor, but I was also a career civil servant, somebody mm-hmm. who, as you said, I'd, had worked for presidents of both parties. And so when the representatives of the Trump administration said, "Hey, are you interested in potentially staying?" I said yes because. In part, I was worried about the chaos of transition. There's always yeah. chaos at transition time. And it would just provide a little bit of organizational stability at NCTC, my organization, if we could you know, go without a leadership change, at least at the outset. And on the counterterrorism and terrorism set of issues, I thought I could contribute to some kind of stability and mm-hmm. continuity when lots of other positions would be turning over. Right, right. Um, at the White House, at the Defense CIA. Department, the State Department, CIA, lots of other places. So 
I was willing to stay, but I also made clear that this was not an, a long-term thing. I, I told the representatives of the Trump administration that it would probably be about a year. Mm-hmm. And that year was different. There's no question that the decision-making styles, the, yeah. the you know, everything. Right. Well, so that's an interesting thing. Because, like, if you're a lower mid-level analyst at, at NCTC, you are probably doing a lot of the same stuff. You're you're tracking ISIS. You're, you know, monitoring the nuclear program of fill-in-the-blank country. But your job was different. I mean, you were at the White House constantly. You're briefing the National Security Council uh, before major meetings. I mean, did it take a while to get used to the new faces, the new styles and rhythms? It, it certainly did. And one of the things that helped, and it sounds kind of odd to say this, but their their tempo of meetings with the new Trump administration was much slower, a lower tempo. That's probably a good thing. Um, than it had been at the uh, end of the Obama administration. Yeah. Uh, the end of uh, the Obama administration, a week could could include for me five, six, seven meetings at the NSC. And I don't say that with pure unadulterated joy. They were not joy. fun. <laughs> yeah. They sucked. And in the new environment, there could sometimes be two or three weeks when I wouldn't get to the White House at all yeah. in this new environment. And that never would have happened you know, during the Obama or Bush administrations. Mm-hmm. So, But I also took great comfort as I looked around the table at those meetings, even if they were fewer, because there were some people around that table that I knew I could trust and rely on and feel good about working with. Secretary Mattis, when he had worked at CENTCOM, I admired uh, him. General Mattis uh, was a you know, a great leader and somebody who's a very serious thinker about yeah. security issues. General Dunford, who carried over, mm-hmm. the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who carried over from President Obama to President Trump. There's nobody in, in the military uh, service that I admire more than, than General Dunford. Jim Comey. Right. Uh, I was a, a, a everybody's I favorite. was and re- everybody's <laughs> favorite. I remain a big fan uh, and admirer of, sure. of Jim Comey. And certainly on my set of issues, the terrorism set of issues, it gave me great comfort to know that Jim Comey was sitting across the table mm. and that FBI was still doing the right things on counterterrorism. That's sort of an interesting thing about the FBI job, right? Is it's a decade long, usually, job. So there is that great continuity. This wasn't your first transition, though, right? I mean, weren't you sitting in the White House as the minute hour clicked over and Obama took took charge? I was. Um, and actually, this was it was somewhat planned out that way. Um, Juan Zarate, who I worked for in the last few years of the Bush administration, as Deputy, National Security, Deputy National Security Advisor for Countering Terrorism, Combating Terrorism, and a someone uh, that is a dear friend of mine, he guy. asked me to come back to the White House as a senior director at the NSC for the last year and a half of the Bush administration when he was still serving. And that was because he knew that there would be transition at the end of Bush, whether it was a Republican or Democrat. Right. And he wanted somebody there of, of my background who could, at least for a period of time, tied things over on counterterrorism right. into the new administration. So that was part of the pitch Juan made to me to come back to the NSC. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the way it played out. So, you know, on in the run-up to Inauguration Day, we did a lot of pre- preparing because there were some particularly scary intelligence. Yeah, real deal scary threats around that inauguration. And right? you, know, you always have- Al-Shabaab or something? It was an individual tied to El-Shabaab. Yeah. Um, and it was always hard to get your hands or your arms around whether this was a real deal or, or something that was yeah. uh, slipping away in terms of how serious it was. But as you know, if it's even a tiny chance that it's real, then the government's going to go all out and make sure we're you know, doing all the right stuff. But what I thought that episode showed was just how hand in glove that transition was from right. President Bush to President Obama. So all of a sudden, John Brennan's sitting in on meetings that were Bush administration terrorism meetings? Exactly. John Brennan had already been designated by President Obama to have that lead terrorism, counterterrorism role at the White House. 
And so it was important that he be read in so that he be able to hit the ground running on inauguration day. All of a sudden, these responsibilities would transition to him, and he couldn't hit the ground cold. He'd had mm-hmm. to, he had to be aware of and, and a part of decision-making even before inauguration mm-hmm. day. And I, I thought it was really, really um, handled extremely appropriately. You know, John Brennan would sit in those meetings, participating when asked, but not looking to necessarily guide or drive discussion because it wasn't his job to do that yet. And so he was doing. Uh, he was he was playing that careful role right. of preparing himself to to assume, as I said, those those pretty yeah. awesome responsibilities. And then on inauguration day, sitting there in the Situation Room, literally watching uh, the events at the Capitol on big screen TV, I'm sitting there with uh, with Mark Lippert, John Brennan, um, Ken Weinstein, the outgoing Bush administration uh, assistant to the president for counterterrorism, and just sitting there having just a really pleasant morning watching you know the president of the united states be inaugurated but at the same time worried that something might go yeah. wrong confident that we had done everything that we could to make sure that nothing would go wrong but still nervous that you know until you get across the goal line you know nobody wanted anything to ruin that remarkable day that is for damn sure one last trump administration question before i want to do some wonkier stuff so when obama was president he would hold regular nse meetings to yearly check-ins to sort of prioritize projects and, and direct the team. Because a lot of what the NSC does is inertia-based, right? You send them off and you and they work on accounts. There's also meetings where the president ultimately signs off on intelligence collection priorities, like Al-Qaeda, Iran's nuclear program, North Korea. Was there that kind of presidential guidance and leadership in the Trump White House, or was this handled more by the H.R. McMasters of the world? I think one of the president advisors early on said to a bunch of us at a deputies committee meeting, this advisor said, this president doesn't think of decision making the way you do. He doesn't think that all of these decisions have to come through a deputies committee and a principals committee process Mm -hmm. and a formal meeting of the NSC. This advisor said, he comes from a business environment. And he's used to gathering around him the people he trusts the most and feels he can rely on uh, with respect to a particular issue get them in a room together with him and make a decision. Hey, and right. so you guys, it was kind of a bit of a lecturing tone this person used, but this person was saying, hey, don't expect things to work the way you deep staters right. <laughs> um, have been um, you know, have been used to working in the last couple of decades. And I'll, I'll leave it to others to, to provide a value judgment on that. I think on certain policy issues, there was very much a bottom-up policy formation exercise. I think mm-hmm. last summer you saw a lot of the reporting on the the Afghanistan policy decision when the president was faced with the decision about whether to sustain our true presence in Afghanistan. Right. And there were deputies meetings and principals meetings yeah. and culminating with the meeting with the president and the National Security Council. Very formalized process. And yet, if, if I'm just going by what I read in the, in the newspaper, um, in the preparations for the North Korea summit, there was none of that. Yeah. He was working <clears throat> with Director or Secretary Pompeo the handful of Korea experts that he felt he needed. And his style didn't require that they sit in a room, in the sit room, and have you know a formally uh, postured agenda at yeah. a deputy, a principal's committee meeting or a national security council meeting. Winging it through uh, nuclear negotiations, we will someday find out if that was a good... I was going to say, I'm prepared to suspend uh, judgment uh, until we find out if, if it works. Because I, I want it to work. We should all want it to yeah, work. Yeah, we should all want it to work. Um, okay, NCTC. What does NCTC do? Like, can you take us through a day in your life as the director and how the products you create get 
dispersed throughout the government and used by policymakers or run up to the president? So NCTC was one of those organizations created in the aftermath of 9-11 when we took that really hard introspective look at ourselves to figure out where we had failed. We, the big we, the, the, you know, the United States government had failed in the effort to prevent a catastrophic homeland attack, mm -hmm. and there needed to be a way to do business better. Yeah. So that period of reform um, growing out of the 9-11 Commission um, led to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and then as a part of that, mm -hmm. the, the National Counterterrorism Center. With the mission of being the one place in government where every bit of available information on terrorism uh, would be made available. NCTC would have access to every bit of intelligence, every bit of other information available related to terrorism so that we could... It's like a blast. We could really fun. put in front of the policymaker the, the most comprehensive and clear picture of the threat we faced. Right, right. That's a great theory. I would say we're still working at it huh, because okay. getting, you know, defining what's relevant to terrorism can sometimes be a little bit controversial. Mm -hmm. um, in the social media world that we live in now, there's a lot of information that is in the unclassified world. You know, think of how many bad guys now are operating on Twitter or yeah. other platforms. And so it's not just, you know, sexy intel cables that we're, we're reading at NCTC. We're actually having to follow what, what the bad guys are doing on publicly available information, mm -hmm. you know, publicly available sites. So the average day at NCTC for me would start at 7.30 with an overnight briefing from my team um, from the NCTC Operations Center, which would kind of collate for me kind of around the world in counterterrorism uh, from the last 24, 12 to 24 hours to kind of kickstart my day. I would have my um, entire senior leadership team with me for that, and then I would skinny down to a smaller group after that for the PDB, the Presidential Daily mm -hmm. Briefing, which I had access to. And after that, it was a mix of, of me, you know, again, this is where the tempo changed from Obama to Trump. In the Obama administration, easily two to three days out of that week would have been focused on White House meetings. Yeah, he's lived you at know, the White House. Syria meetings and Iran meetings and uh, Iraq meetings and you know, just on and on and on and on, Afghanistan meetings. Actually, the, the kind of change in tempo during the Trump administration, at least for me personally, liberated me in some respects. You could set priorities more easily. Hey, I want to go forge a new partnership for NCTC with that group or that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that partner. I did more traveling th this year or that, that year, 2017, because I felt like I wasn't missing, I wasn't giving up my seat at the, at the table at the white house for a decision meeting. And I might as well get out on the road. And, and as I said, you know, cement a partnership with a foreign partner right. or, or create a new relationship for NCTC domestically here in the United States. And domestically, that's worth, worth digging into a little bit. Sure. You think about terrorism and you tend to think about it being all overseas focused. But a lot of what NCTC does, we produce intelligence that feeds the whole customer set, all the way up from the president on down, the cabinet members, but then also all of the workforces of all of these departments in government that work on counterterrorism. But it's also important to remember that NCTC has a responsibility to provide intelligence support to state and local governments around right. the country. No, so that no if, real value if it's sitting in a vault in DC. Exactly. Right? And particularly the way ISIS operates now, you could just as easily find yourself. I, I saw something this morning. There was a, a woman was indicted in Waukesha, Wisconsin, hmm. uh, for connection to ISIS this morning. How much do you suppose the sheriff in Waukesha County, Wisconsin, knows about ISIS? Nothing. Well, it's, it's our job to at least make consumable for him 
um, information that can tell him what he might face, he or she might face in his environment. Right, right. And so we increasingly tried to find ways to write intelligence at the unclassified level. You know, they don't have to know all the spooky spy secrets about right. how information was collected. But if a ISIS guy in Nice, France, takes a bus and drives down a street and kills a bunch of people, that technique might be used here in the United States. And mm -hmm. so we owe it to local law enforcement here to tell them about that and to tell them how to prepare right. to defend themselves. Right. So that was one of the things I felt really good about after several years at NCTC is that we'd really grown in our ability to be full service. Right, push out those alerts. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. 
I want to ask you a bunch of ISIS questions in a bit, but I want to talk to you first about a, a not-so-normal day in the life, which was that weekend of the bin Laden operation. Favreau and Lovett just love telling the story of the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner when they helped write jokes for Obama to convince Donald Trump to run for president. Ha, 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 great work, <laughs> assholes. But the best part of that story is the day before the speech, they're sitting outside the Oval Office all pissed off that they can't get in to see Obama, and you were the reason why. Uh, you were either in with Obama or waiting to see him in the, outside the Oval, too, but for very different reasons. What were you doing there? Uh, do you remember seeing those idiots? I do. <laughs> idiots is your word, not mine. Fair, fair. So, uh, but you're allowed. So, of course, you know, obviously we were working pretty intensively in the period running up to the bin Laden raid. And even in, in, one, in one scenario, the raid might have taken place that day. Right, and that's well right. documented in the reporting since then. But now that we knew it was spilling into the next day, the president obviously had to prepare for the, the correspondence dinner. But we, the White House staff, were all, uh, and the NSC staff, were all in that day preparing a whole bunch of things that needed to be done to make sure we were ready for game time. And one of the things on our checklist that the president had wanted to do was he wanted to reach out to Admiral McRaven, mm -hmm. Vice Admiral Bill McRaven, who was the on-the-ground commander in Afghanistan supervising the raid into uh, Pakistan. He wanted to reach out to McRaven to simply wish him well ask if there was anything he needed that he didn't have so that the president could cut through anything. If there was anything that was on the table that McRaven felt he needed, I think the president wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like the president needed me to staff him for that call. I mean, you've been around the president, Tommy. I yeah, mean, yeah. you write talking points. Wish yeah. Admiral McRaven well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Got this one. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I give... Tom Donilon some credit for this because he did me a great honor by saying, Nick, go staff the president for this phone call yeah. because that allowed me to be a witness to a little bit of history. Yeah. It was a very, not a long phone call, but it was, um, it was a chance for President Obama in a very heartfelt way to wish McRaven Godspeed, you know, hope that the men he was leading would, would not only succeed, but make it back safely. And then he did ask him that question, what do you, what do you need? And McRaven said he had everything he needed to succeed mm -hmm. at the mission. So it wasn't a long conversation. We didn't have to throw those idiots out for very long. But it took a while to get the call synced up. And, yeah, and yeah. so, and I'm sure those guys thought that what they were doing was the most important thing in the world at well, that it moment. It was, obviously. Do you ever feel guilty that that joke wasn't quite perfected? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, uh, you know, that weekend was, a, was an extraordinary weekend in yeah. a lot of ways. But that was just a, one of the more private moments that I got a chance to be a witness to that, uh, that I will never forget. I bet. When you were leading the counterterrorism team on the NSC, I would see you or John Brennan or the amazing people on your staff walking in and out of the Situation Room of the Oval Office, and I would always try to read your face and read your expression, see if I could figure out if something bad was going to happen, <laughs> if something good was going to happen. It never worked. You guys are good poker players because you could have been, you know, talking about getting bin Laden or some very sensitive, scary intelligence about a threat. You personally had to... Let me ask you this, sure. Tommy. When did you find out that something was up? When did, we, when did the, you get brought in the day of the bin Laden operation? I got a call from Ben Rhodes early afternoon, said you should get in here right away. So I went in and I so walked... So kind of noon on that Sunday. Then. Yeah, sort of noonish on that Sunday. And I walked up to Tom Donald's office and sort of said, where's everybody? And they said, you should probably go check the situation room. And then I walked into a room in the sit room and one of my um, CIA colleagues threw down a photo that was that the photo of the, the headshot of oh, bin laden and then i got very quickly read into the whole thing so i just sort of sat in there so the the operation had gone down but there was this whole conversation of are we going to talk about this tonight should he give remarks tonight and disclose this and obviously there are a whole set of very 
delicate, sensitive diplomatic conversations that had to occur with the Pakistanis and everybody else. But yep. we just parked a helicopter in a backyard in Abbottabad. Like there wasn't right. a lot. There wasn't of, a lot to deny here. Wasn't a lot to deny. It was already showing up in the Twitter universe. Exactly. You know, you had individuals in Abbottabad tweeting away about it. But at the same time, we were trying to maximize the decision space for the Pakistanis to right. not freak out. Yeah. And create a, a diplomatic row over this. So. I'm not, not sure we succeeded all that. But remember well there. how there was actually talk of even having the president wait until the next morning which to say crazy. something, which was crazy. Ben and I were just ripping our hair out. <laughs> it's one of those times where there's very, very senior people who are gonna call the shots and be listened to and whatnot. But I mean, you know, it was good to have folks in the room where the rubber met the road and the reporter calls were starting to come in because it started to leak. I think we thought this was a really closely guarded secret, but once the operation went down, I think a lot of special operators were telling their buddies like something really good just happened and it filtered through there. I believe The Rock was tweeting about it at one point that <laughs> night. Enough about The Rock, uh, although we do love him here at Pod State America. So, you know, I would see you guys around, you know, like occasionally I would get read into things you were working on because preparations to respond to a very scary stream of intelligence required talking to the press or we got a really big deal bad guy and ultimately it was going to come out. You know, that was a, on occasion for me. But you you had to take this information home with you every day and couldn't talk about it. You had a tiny circle of people that you were able to work with. You couldn't work from home because everything you did was classified. So you couldn't even leave your windowless office. Like, how did you deal with that job, that stress for so many years, given the stakes involved? You know, it's... I guess the way I dealt with it was by focusing on the the extraordinarily positive aspects of it. You know, I'm here. I am sitting at the center of decision making on one of the most important issues, you know, facing the United States, and I get the privilege of helping shape our response to that. Mm -hmm. And and even more than that, I get a chance to work with some really cool people, people that I really genuinely admire. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I could say that across all of the teams I worked with, you know, in the Bush White House uh, and certainly in the Obama White House, I felt that way. I felt like I am working with truly extraordinary people, people of the highest caliber. And so that, you know, you know, there are stresses and strains working in the White House, and you know, I punched a wall or two along the way, yeah. and you know, I think I. At one point, had a, a fist fight with the elevator wall um, in one of the one of the elevators of the um, Eisenhower Executive Office Building, and my fist lost. Um, but, and I, I've heard other people say this: when you walk out the door every night, whether it's at six p.m., seven p.m., or ten or eleven p.m., and you feel hear the gate clang behind you, mm-hmm. you, you remember where you worked, yeah. and you remember where you were walking from, and that sure managed to make it much more. Um, much more tolerable. I actually thought when I made the transition from the White House to NCTC that, oh, am I going to you know, lose that sense of mission because I'm not at the center of things anymore? And actually, it didn't happen at all. A new sense of mission took over. Now I get the chance to lead an organization of people mm-hmm. who are a, you know, a critical component of the work we're doing on counterterrorism. And I get to lead them with my vision and my ideals and, and my sense of priorities. And so that was a different you know, I'm sure John Brennan went through the same thing at CIA, you know, yeah. stepping away from the White House, you step away from being the seat of power. But at the same time, leading the CIA was probably the opportunity of a lifetime for John Brennan. And suddenly you have actual staff to help you do exactly. the job, which is the White House. You certainly did not. So you guys did amazing work disrupting terrorist plots. If a bunch of Al-Qaeda guys in Yemen were trying to ship a package bomb to Chicago or, or slip a bomb through TSA to take down a plane, the intelligence community found 
incredible ways to intercept those plans or get a tip from a liaison partner to disrupt the plot. The thing I think we all failed at in government was dissuading people from joining ISIS or Al-Qaeda in the first place or understanding even the motivations. What have you learned over the past several decades about why individuals join terrorist groups and, and how do we use that knowledge to keep people from not signing up? Boy, I mean, I guess that in an overarching way, I've learned to bring a lot more humility to this now than mm -hmm. at the point when I started right after 9-11. I remember being part of strategy writing exercises in the, in the Bush administration and then in the Obama administration where we would boldly declare we will defeat, destroy, degrade. Yeah. All oh, these really- All the adjectives. All the, all the words that- and of course, any administration is thinking about this in either a, a two, four, six, or eight-year timeline. So the idea that we were going to you used Yemen as an example, the idea that we were going to fix Yemen and make it not a hotbed for a potential extremism, and we were going to do that just with the tools that the United States has over the time horizon that President Obama had, mm -hmm. it's pretty naive when yeah. you think about it. Um, so I guess where I come out is it doesn't make me a fatalist. It doesn't make me think, oh, God, we're, we're screwed forever on this. But it makes me think, you know, maybe the answer is just to be more resilient. The answer is to, you know, play serious offense, and we still play serious offense. The good news from my perspective is when a bad guy shows up in intelligence as wanting to do harm to the United States, and that intelligence can be traced and tracked, it starts a process that almost inevitably leads to that person's demise, mm -hmm. and often pretty quickly. Yeah. So the offense piece of this, we're always going to be really good at. Really good. The defense piece of this, we're much better at, certainly in the period since 9-11, you know, keeping the wrong the wrong actors outside the United States, making sure that you know the wrong you, you, that you can't smuggle a bomb aboard an airliner. We're always at risk of you know that one mistake. But even what I would say, offense and defense were better. But where we are struggling is winning this war of ideas and somehow turning around the narrative that it's okay to pursue this agenda if you're a, you know an Al Qaeda guy or an ISIS guy. And I don't know how we I don't know how we win that war. I I fully confess uh, I haven't cracked that code. I don't necessarily want to put it on ourselves to figure that we should go solve the problems of Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Yeah, because I'm not sure that's within our grasp. I know I described uh, a bunch of verbs you listed as adjectives earlier, and my readers are going to let me know. What I was hinting at is there was a whole series of times in politics where I feel like the way we deal with counterterrorism problems is to describe in the greatest detail possible how we're going to beat them or to be as critical and nasty to Iran or whomever as possible. And it's just, it's so futile and frustrating. But your point about resiliency is so important. Like we are going to take some punches as a country and do we as a body politic freak out? Does the media freak out? Because right. I do think we can either play into the terrorists' hands or not, right? I think that's right. And, you know, another... Obama insight that I kind of took away from the last year or two when I was at NCTC. We were then, by that point, of course, dealing with the homegrown extremist problem much more. You know, the ISIS-motivated individual mm -hmm. here in the United States who isn't coming here from somewhere overseas, you know, deployed as an operative, right, training probably area. grew up here yeah. um, and may not, have even, may not have even come up on the radar screen for FBI or local law enforcement. I thought the president had a pretty good optic on this. He, I wouldn't say he would have been forgiving of his intelligence community and law enforcement establishment if those, if, if something happens when those individuals 
carry out an attack, but he knew how just how hard a challenge it was yeah. for FBI to get ahead of that. Right. How do you pick out that one in a million person who may have had a, a, an extreme thought, but may not have ever exposed that extreme thought yeah. to somebody else? So he, I wouldn't say he was forgiving about that, but he understood just how challenging it was. Conversely, when we would talk about plots that emanated overseas that were much more of the traditional Al-Qaeda trying to do something complex, complicated, moving parts, maybe aviation related. He wasn't going to be as forgiving about that because right. he knew we had the intelligence capabilities and the military and uh, law enforcement capabilities to go out and do good things on stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So if we missed something in that world, I don't think we would have gotten much of a pass yeah. from him. And one of those new world problems that you talk about is online propaganda. In 2010, Al-Qaeda put out this slick, glossy propaganda magazine called Inspire. And at the time, I remember some people kind of scoffed at it. Others, I think, found it worrisome. And then fast forward a few years, the Boston bombers used a pressure cooker bomb that had been featured in Inspire to kill three people and terrorize Boston. And, and today, the ability to disseminate those terrorist best practices and inspirational messages and propaganda are supercharged by Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, like Telegram, chat rooms, all these things. How the hell do we keep up with them and those tools? And, and what role do the social media companies play in this? It's funny you say about Inspire Magazine. I mean, it, it almost seems quaint to think back to yeah. that period and think that was our problem set at that point, because obviously now it's a much harder problem set. And I would say the technology and social media companies bear some responsibility to be partners with government in the solution to this. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that that's a lot of vague words I just used because I, I can't give you necessarily a prescriptive, you know, Facebook, do these three things, yeah. Twitter, do these five things. But if you can invest them in the problem so that their best minds are thinking about creative ways to identify offensive and dangerous content, identify where that content leads to upstream so that we can identify who the individuals are behind yeah. that content, and then find some way to have that information brought to the attention of law enforcement, that to me ought to be a, a, you know, a reasonable expectation. Um, I understand why um, their terms of service make that sometimes a challenge mm -hmm. for them. It's easy if it's somewhat, if, you know, if... Um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the surviving leader of al-Qaeda, if he posts something on social media and they can follow him upstream and find out his location, I'm pretty sure they would tell us where that yeah, person yeah, yeah. is. But it's a lot harder if it's an individual who we don't know is actually engaged in terrorist activity, may just right. be an extremist who is posting threatening material. Right. So there's a lot of um, gray area in this. The good news is I think many of these companies have understood that this, is, that this responsibility falls in their lap. Um, and they will bear the reputational cost, and that's a business proposition, if, if they don't act on that, uh, mm -hmm. that responsibility. Yeah. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only 
crooked.com slash friends. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Right before you left NCTC, you said something really fucking obvious, which is that we're in a more dangerous situation because of our population of violent extremists having no problem getting access to lethal weapons. The Washington Post called that very clear, mundane statement, quote, rare candor by a senior U.S. <laughs> intelligence official on an issue that is politically charged. Thanks, does, Greg Miller. Does yeah, that drive yeah. you crazy? You're a guy that is – you're trained to deal in cold, hard facts and probability and statistics. But our politics is structured in such a way to dissuade experts from stating obvious things. So that comment came in – I did a, a, a roundtable briefing with a bunch of reporters and on the record because obviously it was on the yeah. record since I managed to make it on the front page or in the pages of the Washington Post in my last couple of weeks um, as NCTC director. And I simply observed at one point that one of my colleagues from another country that has a lot more violent extremists, potential terrorists in their country than mm -hmm. ours – that colleague in the intelligence community uh, of that foreign country said to me, you know, if we had your – our population of potential bad guys and your gun policies, he said, we'd be fucked. <laughs> and I, I I couldn't argue with him because, yeah. of course, it does – I mean, I, th I thought of it as a simple – that's what led me to say what I said uh, to Greg Miller of the Washington Post, which was, look, just the fact that this potential pool of extremists here in the United States has much more ready access – to firearms than they would in almost any other country in the world, that adds to our risk level. Yeah, that, yeah. to me, is not a debatable proposition. But, you know, I take your point. I didn't think of it as anything extraordinary. And, I, I you know, the journalist for The Washington Post, I thought, didn't overplay it or no, overhype no, no. it because um, I think he's a – No criticism. He's of one of the very best. It's a political um, idiocy that drives me crazy. It, it, you know, I, I found myself on that same interview it almost led to me having a moment um, because one of the – cable news networks that I will not identify, left that session with me and within a matter of a few minutes had tweeted out that I had criticized the president's comments on, you know, Muslims. Hmm. And and I hadn't. It was one of those you know, situations where I was asked a question, when the president says certain things about Muslim countries, does mm -hmm. that make your work more difficult? And I answered honestly, anything that contributes to a 
environment where trust is lacking and we can't work together, yeah, yeah that makes life more difficult. But I didn't say, you know, the president's wrong or the president's stupid or the president shouldn't say this. I mm-hmm. just simply observed anything that gets said that makes the environment more difficult makes FBI's job harder, CIA's mm-hmm. job harder, my job harder. And, and within an hour, there's a banner running on CNN saying that I had criticized President Trump. And like, mm-hmm. is that, that's not fair to me. It's not fair to President yeah. Trump. It's not fair to the people at NCTC who I right, was right, right. privileged to lead. But it's the environment we're living in right yeah. now. So it's an interesting broader point here, which is you, you know, our intelligence services, CIA, FBI, everybody, they do incredible work, but a lot of the work they do is building relationships with liaison partners. When you're working with the Saudi intel services or the Jordanians or, you know, whomever, do you hear back from people when there is pretty nasty sort of anti-Muslim sentiment going on in the U.S.? political system or is it a professional relationship that it endures these things? I think it, you, you said it exactly right. I've I've never really felt that there's been spillover into that part of our relationships. It's self-defeating for us to ramp up and ramp down the kind of cooperation we do with partners or that they do with us. Mm-hmm. Here's a good example. Remember the Manchester Arena attack? Yep. Um, Ariana Grande and yeah. all that? Yeah. Within a few hours after that attack, um, the name of the perpetrator had leaked in the American press. Right. And you remember the Brits went apeshit, as yeah. they had every right every to. Right they were in the middle of some very sensitive roll-up operations that would have allowed them, that they thought, would to really understand um, if there was a network and, you know, mm-hmm. how this individual operated, all that. And you had some pretty harsh British statements issued that talked about cutting off intelligence to the United States yeah. on something like yeah. that. Within a couple hours of that, and that was a very emotional response and, and totally understandable, within a couple hours, I had gotten two phone calls, one from each of the main services representatives in Washington of the UK government, making sure that I knew that nothing of the sort was going to happen. Right. From their perspective, the the level of close cooperation between the UK intelligence services and NCTC, right. and by extension of NCTC, CIA and FBI and everybody else, that wasn't going to change. As ticked off as they were and as legitimately pissed off as they mm-hmm. were, I should know that that wasn't going to change things. And I felt good about that. I yeah. think it, it tells it tells the story. The other people that have been kicked around a lot are the so-called deep state, the FBI, the you know CIA. Trump likes to slam them a lot. Have you noticed any sense of whether these sustained attacks have hurt morale or hurt it? our ability to bring in the best and the brightest people into these jobs? It's a good question, and it's something that worries me a lot. And I don't think we'll know for some period of time. But I could mm-hmm. already tell a little bit that even just anecdotally, if I have a conversation through my alumni networks, my grad school and my college, when I hear that some individual is telling me, ah, I'm not sure I want to go into government right now, it drives me crazy. Because yeah. um, especially at the entry level, that may be your only shot. Mm-hmm. You may not have, you know, if, if you want to revisit that decision and five or 10 years, how do you join the entry, you know, the foreign service as easily? I mean, you might, but it's just, it's harder. Or certainly NCTC, we were doing some hiring of entry-level personnel. And the good news was I was still seeing absolutely top shelf resumes, the very best and brightest from the very, you know, with the very best uh, educations and, and, and background. But I worry a little bit about the signal we're sending, um, about public service to people right now. You know, if, if if they either think that it's dishonorable, you mm-hmm. know, they, they sit outside Washington and say, hey, you know, there is a deep state and it is a, it's full of corrupt, dishonest people, that's destructive. But almost as bad as if they just say, 
it's just too messy right now. I don't want to be a part of it. I'll opt out and I'll go work for a, a bank, you know, or, or a tech company or bypass the whole chance to be in, in public service. And that to me drives me crazy. Yeah, me too. I actually, a couple of times when I've talked to people about this, young people in their early 20s, and they start telling me how oh, I'm not sure I want to work for this. I actually get aggressively prescriptive and saying, cut that shit out. <laughs> Go do it. Because the idea that, you know, the entry level position that you may be you know, seeking at NZTC or somewhere, the idea that that is somehow directly connected to the views of the, the president Trump, yeah. or maybe in my role it is, but certainly not for that. My advice to those young people was get into government if you can, develop some talent and expertise, get good at something, and then worry about the political environment a few years down the road when you're senior enough that it may touch on you a little Got bit. It. So interesting thing about you is, you know, you weren't, you didn't come up through the ranks of the CIA or the Department of Defense, which is the area where I think a lot of people would think counterterrorism happens. You were a State Department. And you worked on some really interesting accounts at the State Department. You were, from 94 to 96, you worked for U.S., the U.S. ambassador at large who handled the implementation of an agreement between the U.S. and North Korea to freeze their nuclear program. So yeah, all look the how things, well that turned out. Yeah, yeah, well, so all the things we're trying to do now, uh, you were working on then. What do you make of the recent summit with Kim Jong-un? And from your experience trying to implement an agreement where the North Koreans ultimately cheated, like what lessons did you learn from that time that you think we should be applying right now? So first of all, we should all hope that this effort succeeds, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. If success is possible here, and success is defined by me as verifiable, sustainable denuclearization of the North Korean nuclear program, then we should all be hoping for that. Right. Um, and it shouldn't even be a close call. We yeah. shouldn't say, oh, uh, you know, I hope he doesn't get the credit for this. Mm -hmm. Crazy. And I actually was pretty, in my own mind, comfortable with the idea of jumping right into the summit piece of this, because I sometimes found it troubling in the past when people criticized other presidents for being willing to talk to an adversary like Obama and Iran. And so to me, I'm not sure how much actual benefit you provide to another country, a rogue nation, as it were, by simply agreeing to talk to them. And you actually only get anywhere by, by negotiating with your adversaries. Yeah. You're not We aren't trying to denuclearize the UK, yep. uh, which would be a much easier negotiation sure. to have. So I was pretty willing to cut the president a break on that. And now we have to see what happens. And, and it's clear that all of the responsibility shifts to Secretary Pompeo and the team of US experts that will then dig into the problem of how to confidently structure an agreement that allows us to know, have insight, have the insight that we need to know that we that the North Koreans are taking the steps that they commit to mm -hmm. and that we can verify it over time. You mentioned I worked on this problem in the 90s. I, uh, I did. I had one trip to, to North Korea, and it was around the idea of us having caught the North Koreans cheating on something. Hmm. What, were they, what were they doing? Um, we were providing, as part of the 1994 agreement, we were providing them heavy fuel oil. Right. They were choosing, as part of the agreement, they had agreed not to generate electrical power through these nuclear plants they had, the light water reactors that they had. And to compensate them for that, we were providing them fuel oil so Got they it. could run their power plants. Got it. Well, we had gotten some indications that they were skimming, that there, some of the fuel oil was not necessarily going for pure pure heating, that it might be used for something else, something more sure. nefarious. And as a military matter, it wasn't a particularly profound thing, but it sure was politically explosive because yeah. it could have showed 
um, that we were being gamed by the North Koreans, that we were, you know, once again, you know, being taken to the cleaners by better negotiators and that they were lying and cheating. So I was in North Korea as part of an effort to, you know, install some equipment that would kind of allow us to know with more certainty if they were cheating with this heavy fuel mm -hmm. oil. Small, small episode in history, but to my mind, just kind of, we're going to need a lot of access. We and the international community is going to need a lot of access to a lot of North Korean yeah, territory yeah, yeah. in order to be able to s satisfy ourselves that when they say it's over here, that it's not over there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the good news is, is I think Secretary Pompeo's experience at CIA probably gave him some immersion in this issue that he might not have otherwise had. He certainly, as director of the CIA, would have had every opportunity over his year as director to dig really, really deeply into the intelligence to understand the problem. And so as the Secretary of State, tell me later if it succeeds or not, but I, I, I feel like it's better than the path we were on. Yeah. You also worked on the Middle East Peace Account for a guy named Dennis Ross, we all worked with later at the White House on the NSC. Which felt more intractable? <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, the, the Middle East peace process part or part of my professional life was in some ways more frustrating because you really came to develop not only respect and admiration, but fondness for people on both sides yeah. or all sides. And to see them not able to make the hard decisions or, or maneuver their politics in a way that allowed them to get to successful solutions or agreements was heartbreaking. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been out of that game for 20 some years. And yet you look back and some of the same issues are at play. Many of the same actors mm -hmm. are still at play. All we've succeeded in doing is creating another um, generation of uh, people in Israel and the Palestinian territories who view this conflict as permanent. Yeah. Uh, and that can't be a good thing. Certainly not on the Palestinian side because the sense of hopelessness it creates on the Palestinian side, you know, that, that can only bubble over into, you know, violence and... I don't and know, what we've seen in Gaza. It's, just, yeah. it's frustrating because I really did, as I said, come to admire and really like the people that we were working with in that, in that period of history and yet we just didn't get it done. Yeah. You know, an opportunity was presented, it, it didn't get done, and successive presidents have now tried and failed. Yes, massive missed opportunities. Nick, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. Thank you for 27 years of working really hard to keep us safe and solve big problems. Uh, we need more people like you. So hopefully young people listening, going to government. Going to government. It's interesting. The pay isn't great. The pay get, sucks. But you get to work with really great people and you'll make a contribution um, that you'll be proud of. The pay sucks. The hours are shit, but uh, it's pretty cool. And you may even qualify as a deep state member. <laughs> yeah, you get a card. So I got to give a shout out to my um, one of my uh, former executive assistants, Allison Alley McMorrow, who gave me as a farewell gift from NCTC a Yeti mug engraved that said deep state alumni Ooh. so that way i know i can always remind myself that i am still in the deep state even though i'm outside government that's beautiful give me a picture of that we'll get it on fox news okay all right nick thanks again <laughs>